It has been said, every life is difficult in its own way. That was David Schreiber. And I think we've all experienced that. What I want to talk about today is shame. Shame is something that I've only talked about, I think, in a, in a sermon one time in our recovery service, which meets every uh, Sunday night at 6. And shame has lots of different faces, lots of different moments. Most people deal with shame at some point in their life in some way. It could be the mother who's overweight and in the dressing room trying to find a bathing suit for the family vacation that includes some time on the beach. And she ends up in tears because she experiences some shame over her body. It could be the elementary school child that proudly brings her uh, test to mom. And she got a 92, and she's excited. She hands the test to mom, and mom looks at her and says, what happened to the other 8%? Shame has lots of different faces. It can be the husband who can't look at the marriage counselor when the couple sits down in the office and the wife announces to the marriage counselor that she's caught him looking at pornography again. There are lots of different ways people experience shame. The rejection and pain of divorce, many people have experienced shame because of that. I've even read about men that they lose their job and they pretend to go to work for a couple days till they can kind of mount up that that quiet courage to go and sit down and tell the wife that they lost that job, to share with the kids they're going to face some real challenge. Or maybe it's the mother who's embarrassed to even say she's a mother because she had one child, and now that that child has grown, um, that daughter won't even speak to her, won't even acknowledge her. Shame has lots of faces, lots of ways that it shows up in our lives. Most of us, have a story of shame. Have something that, that it's almost like Brene Brown, who's kind of a shame researcher. She talks about how it washes over you with this kind of warmth. It can be a full body experience, not just an emotion. I debated whether or not to go into a little bit of detail about my own shame story, but I am going to share a little bit. Um, I'm very blessed in the life that I have lived. But one wound that I have, one shame story that I have, is as a six-year-old boy in Lexington, Kentucky, had a female babysitter that was very inappropriate with me. Would take me into the back room and we would play these role-play games. And I was always the kidnapper or the bad guy and she would pretend to be tied on a bed or something. And she would tell me what to do and as a little six-year-old boy, I would do it. Now, that's painful, and it's shameful. And even though I came from an amazing uh, family, wonderful parents, incredible parents, never told them. And when my parents asked, why? Why wouldn't you tell us? Because we would have helped. We would have... And um, by the grace of God, we moved from Lexington to Indianapolis, Indiana, and so it only lasted for a short period of time. But um, I know why I didn't tell them. Because the way that woman did that, I was the perpetrator. She put it on me. 
Do you see that? How does a six-year-old boy process that? I'm the kidnapper. I'm the bad person. And so the whisper is you're the bad one. My family kind of laughs about a story, um, and I did it often. Um, I look at it a little differently now. And, um, you know, when something would get broken, when me and my cousins were together or friends, you know, you know how that happens. You have a lot of kids in a room and come back and the antenna's broken or something's broken. And I would always pipe up when the adult would walk in the room and I'd say, I didn't do it, I'm a good boy. And that's kind of funny, right? But I think that was part of my wrestling against the whisper because I had a secret and I believed I was a bad boy. So you need to understand, shame can hit you. It can be something you did. It can be something that's your fault. It can be something that's not your fault. The other piece that that particular woman did was our last interaction was she said to me, the next time I come back, you have a choice. And the choice is either I'm going to do stuff to you or you're going to do something to your sister and I'm going to watch. And so as a six-year-old boy, I have to process that and think about that. Once again, putting the responsibility on me. And I remember deciding I would take the hit but here's the deal. We moved, and I never had to make that decision. And I always wondered, did I really have the courage to do that? I don't know. I don't really know. That is shame. And it's ugly, and it's heavy, and it hurts. That's shame. I know when I came to Fairbanks, one of the things I began to do was individual spiritual plans with people. And I just give you an example of where shame comes from for a lot of folks. I was stunned at the number of people because in our individual spiritual plan process, I ask all kinds of questions for an hour. And one of the questions I ask, and I always say to the person, you don't have to answer that if, if you don't want to, but I always ask, so were you abused as a child? maybe physically, sexually, verbally, because that affects where you are spiritually and it affects your life. And I was stunned, absolutely stunned, at the number of people that would break into tears, say, yeah, that's part of my story. And the shame that comes with that, had people say, yeah, and I, I feel terrible shame over it because I it felt good or I felt like they had me it was they blamed it on me so shame is a powerful thing I do want to give credit because uh, I may not always remember to give exact uh, credit but Brene Brown if you've never watched um, some of her TED talks I mean her her initial TED talk about the power of vulnerability, which was really about wrestling with shame, I think it's up to 49 million hits. 49 million hits. Shame is a silent epidemic, she says. Another author, Kurt Thompson, he's a medical doctor, and those two have influenced a lot of my thinking on this, so I just want to give that credit as I go through some of this. 
Shame is not new, it is old. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve sinned. And you see them after they sinned. So they did it. They were in paradise. And they're tricked, fooled, tempted, whatever word you want to use, and they choose to defy the one rule God gave them. And here they are. God comes for his nightly walk with them. And what does shame do? You see it in the story. They hide. What does shame do? When he tracks them down, he talks to Adam and says, hey, what, what did you do? What happened here? And what does Adam do? He blames Eve because shame blames. And it isolates and it divides. And he even blamed God, this woman that you gave me. And then what does Eve do? She blames the serpent. I appreciate a, a distinction that Brene Brown makes. She says, guilt is good. Shame is usually bad. Guilt is, I did something bad. I own that, and what am I going to do about it? Shame is, I am bad. Do you see the difference? And so we need to understand this. There are lots of sources of shame. It can come from lots of different places. Lots of times other people put it on us. I think of the story in John chapter 9 where you have a blind man and it's fascinating to me what the apostles say to Jesus. Here's this blind man and they say to Jesus, is he blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? And Jesus says, no, you've gotten this wrong. We're at this moment for the glory of God. For you to see what God can do. And so when you look at your life, when you look at the problems and the pain and the, the difficult moments and seasons of struggle, understand, try not to look at it just as a problem to be fixed, but as a moment that God can redeem and make a thing of beauty. Because he can. He can do anything. The results of trauma, uh, and trauma is usually the cause of shame, not always, but often, is that it, it shows up in lots of different ways. You can have fear, you can have division, you can have blame, you can have all these different things that come out of it. And often survivors of trauma, where it turns into shame, begin to fear that they are damaged to the core and beyond redemption. And it leads to a cycle of destructive behavior. It can make you emotionally numb. It can make your relationships very difficult to have. And so what happens is you end up with this story of shame that you tell to yourself about how worthless you are, how you're not enough, how even God can't use you. And this isn't necessarily everybody, but for some people, this is the tape that rolls in your mind. So, now that I've unpacked that a little bit, let's look at how to begin the healing, because we're finishing a series on incremental healing, how God heals. Sometimes he does it instantly, sometimes he does it incrementally. That's what I've seen more often. One is that we need to believe the truth. 
In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Where our minds are changed, literally changed, by believing the truth of God. The Apostle Paul was not a, uh, you know, a brain expert, but God gave him this. See, for a long time, science kind of thought that brains got to a certain point and then they, they really stopped rewiring and doing all of this. And now they talk, about the, um, they talk about how the brain is always rewiring and we're creating new pathways and we're growing and changing. We're literally, with the word of God, renewing our minds. And it helps us, when we believe the truth, to push shame back. I think of the famous story of David and Goliath, and Goliath mocks David, this young man, maybe 12, 13, I don't know how old he was exactly, but a young one, and he comes out to fight this giant of a man, and Goliath makes fun of him and mocks him, and he's like, you know, what are you? Did you send a child? But see, David believed the truth, that he was coming for the honor and the glory of Almighty God, and that who was standing with him was greater than the giant standing in front of him. We need to be people who believe the truth. You know, in the scene with Adam and Eve, see, Adam gets to name the animals. When you name something, that means you have dominion over it. It means, in a sense, you, you have control over it. And so this is why it's important. If your shame story has uh, some trauma in the back, it's important for you to actually name it and call it what it was. If your father was violent and beat you, don't say my father was strict. Tell the truth, at least to yourself. You don't have to tell it to everybody. Don't water it down. Believe the truth. Believe the truth about your own history, about your own story, and ultimately believe the truth about what God says about the world, about things that happened to you, about things that you have done, and about who you are. See, the greatest source of suffering in our lives often are the lies we tell ourselves. Sometimes I meet people and they, like, if, if you understood how rotten I was, you wouldn't think God could use me. Or they get in a relationship and they sabotage it once it gets to a certain point because they don't think that they're actually lovable. You need to believe the truth, what God tells you about you. In Genesis 1.27, he gives us this incredible phrase and he says this about each of us. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That means you have intrinsic value and worth not tied to what you can do, not tied to how smart you are, not tied to what you accomplish in life, but you have intrinsic value and worth because you are made in the very image of God. That is revolutionary if you believe it, but you gotta believe it. Your special creation of God, Psalm 139 verse 14 says, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And that's hard. A lot of uh, Brene Brown studied shame and women, and a lot of it had to do with body image. 
you're made by God. He made you who you are. He gave you the nose he gave you, the eyes. And so we're special creation of God. Believe it. Believe the truth about God's love for you. Probably the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He loves the world. He loves you. He loves me enough to pay the ultimate price to send his own son. Many of you are parents. Who would you exchange your child for? And yet God did it for us. Now he knew he was going to rise from the dead. That made it a little easier. But still, to watch your son suffer and die and experience your justice and your wrath for the sins of all humanity of all time, God did that for us. We are deeply and passionately loved makes a huge difference in life if you believe that. Now, I want you to understand um, a little bit. I'm gonna, my wife's going to come up and pull this board up so you can actually see it. And I just want to walk you through something just a little bit further on shame before I kind of wrap up a couple things. This is something that she gave me that she uses. Uh, my wife is a therapist, um, which has saved me a lot of money, right? Anyway, <laughs> but um, so if you look at this, so let's say, because a lot of shame comes from trauma. Not all of it, but a lot of it comes from trauma. So let's say age seven, there's a trauma. Dad's an alcoholic, dad's angry. The family just circles around dealing with dad's drunken rages. And so seven is the peak of that. And so you have to decide what, what's going on here. And you decide, I am unimportant. That's the message that comes out of that particular trauma. I am unimportant. And then, so you decide, you come up with an I will statement because you got to live, you got to function, you got to figure out how to do life and you're a little kid with all this violence swirling around you, and you're like, I will keep the peace. And you might even add, at all costs. And some of you have lived this. I will keep the peace at all costs. And so now you're committed to being a peacemaker. This is who you are. This is part of your, begins to be part of your core identity. How are you going to do that? How are you going to keep the peace? Well, um, you might... Because as you're growing up, you're living with an addict who's oozing all over your boundaries and not going to take no because he's dad and you're the child. And so one is, I don't get to have boundaries. One might be, I don't get to have strong opinions. One is, I keep silent and don't say anything. I will keep the peace at all costs. And that's what shame can look like. And yet, the truth... We just were talking about the truth. Part of the way out here is the truth. I am important. I am valuable. I will be used by God. I I will be used in a powerful, profound way. And if you follow Jesus, sometimes that means you're not going to keep the peace. Sometimes it's going to cause some issues. But you are called to be a peacemaker, which is different than a peacekeeper. A peacemaker is much more, it takes a lot more initiation. It takes loving your enemies. It's a lot harder. And how you do it, you'll walk this out. Okay, thank you, dear. Set it back. 
That just gives you a little bit here. But the truth is part of how we walk out of this. Another part of how we walk out of this is connection. Connection is absolutely key. And it's connection with God and connection with others. When you look at Jesus Christ and the names that he goes by, I think it helps us to understand that he is the Prince of Peace. And so as we connect with him in the midst of your shame, in the midst of dealing with any trauma that you had in life, you can experience actual peace. Peace is about having adequate resources for whatever you face, and Jesus offers you adequate resources. He's called the Davidic king. And you might go, well, how does that play in? Well, I think it helps us because David did some shameful things. And yet God still used him powerfully. That can be a real encouragement when you look at that. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is not just a man. He's not just a moral teacher. He's not just some political revolutionary. Jesus Christ is king of kings and lord of lords. He is above all things. He has all power. Nothing you face, not your shame, not your trauma, not your loss, not your grief, can stand up to the Alpha and the Omega. Nothing. He's a mighty God. He's a prophet like Moses. Moses did some shameful things. He murdered a man. Spent 40 years in exile over all of that. And yet God used him and made him one of the most powerful, incredible, influential leaders in redemptive history. You may be sitting here right now and think, I am unusable. I've done too much. I've gone too far. I'm too broken. No, you're not. If he can use David, if he can use Moses, he can use you. He is a faithful high priest, one who offers the ultimate sacrifice, which is himself. Isaiah 53, which I love, it's this prophetic picture of Jesus paying for our, our sins Hundreds of years, 700 years before Jesus arrives on the, theme, on the scene. And here's what it says, Isaiah 53, verse 3 through 5. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed through the cross of Jesus Christ there is great redemption and so connection to the cross of Jesus Christ through the to the gospel message of the Christ of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus we find hope and life connection is key he was the rejected cornerstone he knows what rejection's all about he was the suffering servant. He was the faithful shepherd. Shepherd, He's the one who can lead us. Psalm 25, 2 says, I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. You can walk a life in which you can trust God. He has allowed some bad things to happen to you, but you can still trust God because he works for good. He takes the broken pieces and he puts you together. A form of art that I like are they're called mosaics and they take broken pieces of glass or tile and they do these incredible, beautiful designs. That's what your life is. He takes all the brokenness and brings forth from it beauty. He does this. And we reconnect with others. See, the trauma and the shame often comes from shattered connections with others. 
sinful connections with others. And so now we have to, in a holy way, in a loving way, in a righteous way, reconnect with others. We are so wired for relationship. I mean, when we are born, the first thing we do is we scream to announce our arrival, right? And someone immediately grabs us and cleans us and holds us. And, and then there's this beautiful, you know, they always put the child on the mother's uh, chest and she holds and there's good skin-to-skin contact and that, that matters. Connection. We are wired for connection. And through Christ, through interacting with Christ, even though those connections um, have been damaged, we can find connection again. I think of the Samaritan woman in the, in the Gospels who Jesus met with this woman. She comes out to the well to get water and she comes in the middle of the day. And that says this woman had been ostracized. She'd had a bunch of husbands reject her. Now she's living with a man. This was unheard of in that time and in that culture. And so to avoid all the other women, she comes and gets water in the middle of the day. She interacts with Jesus who declares to her and reveals to her, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And through that connection with her, she finds the courage to go reconnect with her village. She runs back and says, hey, I found the Messiah and brings them all back. Through Christ, we can have connections with others. We can move forward. If you've had trauma in your life and shame has come out of that, you need familiar places and safe places. In World War II in England, you know, the Nazis bombed London just mercilessly. But they found uh, later when they did studies, the children that stayed in the bombing with their parents were emotionally much healthier than the children that were sent away to the countryside into a safer place. The connection with the parents made more of a difference than than not having to see and experience a nightly bombing raid from the Nazis. I find that fascinating. There is power in connection. The recovery movement lives and dies by connection. Getting other people who struggle with the same things together and saying, hey, let's move forward together. Let's connect. I love a, a word that David uses in the Psalms. It's the word dwell. And he talks about dwelling with God and, in a sense, dwelling with other people. And it's, it's to settle in and to truly connect. Not to just have this passing um, interaction, but to dwell with, with God and to dwell with others, to do life with others. One of the reasons that we as a church emphasize small groups is because I think it's very easy to come and in a bigger group to just not really get to know anybody. Social distancing hasn't really helped that. It's even harder. You can't, you're not supposed to hug, you're not supposed to shake hands and all of that. And so we are called to connection. And through those connections with a sponsor or a mentor or a pastor, or a therapist, or a good friend, or people in your church. You can move forward in your life. You know, there's an interesting image we're given in the book of Hebrews. It talks about the cloud of witnesses. And it's this image of people who've gone before us, and it's like they're watching us and cheering us on, going, well done, keep going. And it's those that are around us, One of the reasons that I think that my 
results from my trauma were pretty low is because I had a remarkable cloud of witnesses in my life. My family, friends, mentors, pastors. Huge. What's your cloud of witnesses? Have you been intentional about it? You need to be. Connect with people in this church. Connect with other Christians. You can have relationships with non-Christians, of course, but they can't be the deep ones. They can't be the deepest ones. They can't be the most influential ones. You need people who are walking with you in the same direction. That's why it's so crucial in marriage that you choose wisely, that you're walking in the same direction. Who's in your cloud of witnesses? What are you going to do about that? How are you going to be intentional there? Because that's part of how you walk out of shame is you share the shame with key people. Not everybody. You don't have to share it with everybody. But with, you better share it with somebody. It amazes me the difference between Judas, who betrays Jesus, and Peter, who denies Jesus. Similar offenses. Judas ends up committing suicide. He just cannot deal with the shame. Takes his own life. How could I do this? 30 pieces of silver? Can you imagine all the kindness of Jesus, all those images running through his mind? He separated himself from the community of faith, tried to do life alone, and ended up taking his own life. Peter stayed with the, with the community of faith and allowed Jesus to invite him back in. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And bit by bit, question by question, interaction by interaction, Peter is reinstated and welcomed back into the family by Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. I want to encourage you if you're wrestling with shame, to grab the lifelines of truth and connection. Connection with God and connection with others. You can walk free of shame and you can experience a life of flourishing joy and impact. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for each person here. Lord, I lift up those who are the walking wounded this morning because in a group this size, there are some. I pray that you comfort, you encourage. Lord, help them to just feel, not just intellectually, but to the core of their being, the sweet balm of your forgiveness. The precious gift of your righteousness that you get to wear if you're in Christ. Lord, I pray that if someone is here and not a follower of Jesus, they would seriously consider it. That they would believe, that they would confess their sins, that they would walk in repentance, that they would take that public step of Christian baptism and say, I'm with him, I'm with Jesus. Lord, I just ask, I just ask that you will save us from our shame. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus, the name above all names. Amen.